All right, you may go ahead and take a seat. Uh, my name is Darren Slater. My family's been around since uh, 2015-ish, somewhere around in there. Um, this morning, uh, I'm going to be reading the text of Scripture for us for our sermon. Um, real quick, if you do not have a Bible of your own, at the end of each row, there are some Bibles that uh, we provide for you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home that you are able to read well, uh, it's hard to read, maybe hard language, that type of thing, feel free to take that home with you and read it on your own. Uh, we actually use the ESV uh, version of the Bible um, as a church. Uh, we use that because it's very accurate and it's also readable. And so we want you to be able to have both. And so that's what we're doing this morning. Uh, on that Bible, if you have that and picked it up, uh, it is the, the text this morning is on page 865. We'll be in Micah chapter 4. Please follow along with me as we read. Micah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they will sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken." For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame, I will make them remnant. And those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon." There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaths to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, I will make your hooves bronze, and you shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. That's the word of the Lord. Finally, a weekend we can wear flannel. Yes. A hoodie, right? Not in shorts. Well, I'd still be in shorts today if, if it, uh, I wasn't up on stage preaching, but that's, that's just me. Uh, but wow, I, fall showed up and it's awesome, right? Uh, uh, welcome, and we're glad you're here. If you're, this is your first time at Genesis, we're thankful you're hanging out with us. My name's Mike. I'm, I'm one of the elders, and I have the honor of being the teaching pastor. And uh, so we, we're working through this amazing 
Old Testament prophetic book, the book of Micah. And we're going to get into this amazing, just beautiful poem today that Micah, from his preaching and teaching ministry, wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a people who were in a, a, a hard season of life, a tough place. Um, and, and it's a blessing. And it's helping them get above their story to see the big story. There's some, some movies out there <clears throat> that um, you, you watch the whole movie, and when they're really well told, as you're going through the movie the first time, you don't pick a whole bunch of stuff up. But certain movies you can't watch a second time once you know the ending without seeing the whole movie in light of the ending. Um, you know, you, you hear the phrase, I see dead people. And if you've ever seen the movie, you're like, oh, yeah, when we got to the end of the movie. Or, or uh, there's, there's a movie called The Usual Suspects. Anybody ever see that movie? Uh, this is a 28-year-old spoiler alert, just so you know. Uh, so uh, if you're waiting to see the movie, you don't want somebody to ruin the ending, I'm really sorry. But uh, in the movie, there is this character called Roger Verbal Kent, who is uh, all through the movie, he is a crippled, like low life, but low on the totem pole gangster who gets picked up by the police after several massive heists that included uh, a lot of people dead and things like that happen. And he begins to, to, in front of the police, like the whole movie is him unfolding the story of this awful international gangster named Soze and telling how he didn't really know who he was and nobody had ever seen Soze, but telling these horrible stories and how he had uh, killed a whole bunch of people, but he was also under the person under all the other things that had happened in this town. And as the movie ends, <clears throat> they finally have to let him go. And as he's walking away, there's a fax that comes from another situation that shows a, a sketch outline. And the sketch outline is a perfect picture, drawn picture of this verbal Kent guy. And he's walking out with his limp until he gets out on the street. And then he gets out of the street and he begins to walk, straightened up. And at, the, at that moment, you're like, oh, snap. He just told his own story. He's Soze. He's like the ultimate gangster. He hops in a car and drives away. When the police see the drawing, they go searching it. They just let him go searching for him. They can't find him. And he's gone. And, and he, like in movie form, he's, he's got one of the great movie lines. He's saying that he, he's the one who says in a movie form what we should know, that the greatest lie the devil ever told is to convince the world that he doesn't exist. Like, he, he used that line. I'm like, yep, there it is. But, but here's this, and I just ruined it for you. If you haven't seen the movie, you know the ending. You watch that movie now, you're going to be like, oh, I got to understand the whole movie. But the first time, you have no idea. They keep that hidden, and you get to the end, and you're like, that is a huge final twist, right? And you can't, you can't do the movie a second time without seeing the whole movie in light of where it ends. Well, what's going on in our text this morning is something that happens in these great prophetic books. The, the prophets are speaking to people at a specific time, a specific moment, specific situations, uh, specific problems in their moment in history. There will always be in their story parallels to our moment. <clears throat> But they are speaking to people at a specific time and place. So they're kind of hard to understand if you don't get into the moment. But then there are places in all of the prophets where they get above the story. They get us to a 30,000-foot view and explain the why behind the what. This is what God is doing in the world. And you, you have this little moment in the story. But the way you live in this moment 
is not, not getting lost in the moment. You need to hear what God is saying to you in your moment about your time, calls to repentance, calls to trust in the Lord, calls to turn from our idols. But the reason is because those who know Jesus, those who know the God of Scripture, those who know the true and living God, our hope is founded and rooted in the fact that we know where the story goes. Scripture wants us to live the chaos of our moment in light of the end of the story, the full story. And so, as we've been reading Micah, the first three chapters have been this indictment. But like Micah, functioning as God's attorney, which is what the prophets are, comes before his people. He is speaking in the 700s B.C., Israel, when, when the story started, Israel had splintered into two nations, the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Micah made some, his first round of preaching warned both kingdoms that there were impending powers that God was raising up to bring his judgment. One of them was going to be the Assyrian Empire. The northern kingdom continued to ignore what God had said. And God, in his love and mercy and justice, but, but also his, his wrath and punishment, Sends the Assyrian armor. It's it's awful for God's people. Like it's it's not cupcakes and puppy dogs in the Bible all the time. And the Northern Kingdom falls, seven twenty two B.C. These people who who had a covenant with their God are destroyed. Like the Bible is just showing us real world. And, and the Southern Kingdom survives. But Micah comes back with a couple more rounds of preaching, telling them about the idolatry, how they are pursuing all these other gods of the nations. They, they're doing that because they don't want a God who tells them how to live their lives. They're going to find a God who will let them live the way they want to and do the things they want to. And, 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 and so that turns, always turns into sex slave trade, oppression, uh, making people objects. Uh, so you end up with, with a society where the, the people who are in power and have uh, you know, uh, ability to, to do so, have wealth, can oppress and marginalize and push to the sides the people who are broken and hurting. They become objects just to use for their gain. And, and Israel had become worse than any of them. In fact, in, in one of the parallel po- passages that gets us to just a little bit later in the story, but is following the warnings of Micah, the author of the book of First and Second Chronicles, in telling the history of Israel, says this. I want you to hear these words about why God, in that moment, finally raises up the judgment that Micah promises Assyria first, but then Babylon for the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people at this time. In First Second Chronicles chapter 36, 14 and 15, it says, All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Now, settle in on these words. I, I want you to, like, I'm not going to get too graphic, but I want you to understand that, that the, the, the activity of the nations, Israel was up to their armpits in the sex slave trade, so they were, they were conquering other peoples. When they, when they had power, they would go conquer a village. They would kill all the men, take all the children to be their, their slaves, and take all the women to be their sex, sex slaves. And then when those women would get pregnant, they would sacrifice those babies that would get pregnant in the sex slave trade on, on, on coals 
to the gods Molech and Baal and the different gods of the nations. He says, listen, my people who are supposed to know me, who are supposed to be a light to the nations, you, you become worse than even the nations around you. Verse 15, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers. These are the prophets. Because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was saddest words in the Old Testament. No remedy. No remedy for what? For God to accomplish his saving purpose through this nation. They, they had turned the house of God into nothing more than a spectacle. For decades at, at a time, they just closed the doors and didn't go in. No more worship of Yahweh, Jehovah, the true and living God, who is the God of Israel. The embracing of all these, like, it had just become awful. And here comes Micah, the prophet, and he's standing up with the word of the Lord going, here's the indictment, here's the indictment. You, you got to cut this out. It's dark. It's turning sideways. The northern kingdom has fallen. Babylon's coming. He, God is going to bring judgment. It is, it is incredibly, incredibly dark. And listen to me. We need the Old Testament to speak to us. We live in a time where it's hard and difficult and dark now, don't we? It is, it is really hard to make sense of what's going on in the world <clears throat> as we see an alignment of China, Iran, Russia, and the world. What, is this it? Man, people, people who love end time stuff have gone crazy. Saw a tweet from one of my funniest Twitter accounts that said, just a quick reminder, you may not want to let the guy who wants to teach the eschatology Sunday school lesson to teach the eschatology Sunday school lesson right now. <laughs> Point being is, like, the guys, the people who love the end times, they're like, there it is! That's been going on for 2,000 years. We don't know, but it's hard. <clears throat> the church in America, man, we've, we've got problems. They run deep. Stuff showed up again this week, and, and the tribe that I love and that we're a part of that broke my heart as some of the leaders in our own denomination decided to stand with the protection of perpetrators of sexual abuse rather than stand up for the victims. It happened again. I want to curl up in a ball and cry. The divisiveness in our culture is often worse in the church. I'm, I'm watching, like, I, I, I hang out on X. That's my social media. I silenced most of my feed because it made me so mad. But I still have a few people, and so I get my news and stay on top of certain things. And I'm watching one after another after another of godly Christian people going, I got to get out of here. I can't be on Twitter anymore because the nature of Christian people here is devastating my faith. It's real. It's dark. We need a prophet, the prophetic voice of the Lord, to stand up and go, cut it out. This is not the way God's people are supposed to act. We need that. And that's what Mike has been doing for the 7th century people. He's been saying, listen, we have got to turn back to Jehovah. We have to, the God who loved us, who saved us, he is good to us. And for three chapters, he's been giving this indictment. It's a court case against him. But then, out of that darkness, chapter 4 and 5, light. Uh, John Calvin one of the great, really the theologian of the Reformation. 
It was like the door, or the huge wall of his church in Geneva, they posted this here. His great theme was after darkness, light. Post Tenenbrom, Lux in Latin. After darkness, light. And he was looking at the fact that because of abuses and certain things that went on in the Catholic Church, capital C, not Catholic Church, small c that we thank God for, but the, the denomination that was at that point in time the one church in the West had led to a darkness in the soul of the people, that what was happening in the Reformation was a rediscovery of the gospel and a bursting forth of light after darkness, light. That's what's happening in the text here. As Micah writes this incredible poem, it's poetic, so it's filled with symbolism and language and beauty. And we're going to pick it apart and make sure you understand what he's saying. But what he does is he's given them their moment. He's saying, here's what's going on now. Let's get above the story so that you can live this moment. And maybe what's going on in our world and our lives and what's going on around us is the judgment of God. We don't know. But I can tell you this. We can get above the story with Micah. We need to hear what he says in Micah 1, 2, and 3. We all need to wrestle with what it looks like to hear the indictment of God to call us back to faith in him, to hold on passionately to the gospel, to believe in Jesus wholeheartedly. But the reason we can do that is because the gospel itself and authors like Micah who are sent by God will tell us that indictment and then they will say, but you've got to see your moment in light of the ending of the whole story. And this is a massively hope-filled two chapters of the Bible. (laughs) And guess what? Little, Little spoiler alert for those of you who haven't figured it out. You know who these two, two chapters are about? If everyone guess it, they are about Jesus. Micah is in poetic form looking forward to the latter days, and he is going to show us Christ as the true and living hope. For those, he is the end of the story. He is the hope we hold on to. His story is our story. And, and so that's the hope we're pointing you to today. Our moment is filled with all these brokenness, but Micah offers, offers us this beautiful story, this beautiful passage that, that is two parts. You will have, like, if you're here today, you've got to come back next week and hear part two of this great thing where <clears throat> he focuses in on a king. But this week, we're going to talk about the story itself, how Micah, in this prophetic book, in beautiful ways, points us to kind of four big ideas that are true of the big story, that even Israel in the 7th century and you and I in the 21st century AD could look to this and say, man, we live our lives, it's hard, it's broken, we get bad news, our our bodies hurt, our lives hurt, the world around us is chaos, our government can't get it together, like, what is going on in the world? And the the prophets are saying to, to us who know Jesus, Live with a different hope in the world than the people around you who don't see hope. Because you, you know where this is going, okay? That's what he's doing. So uh, check it out. Four things. And the first thing is this story is a sovereignty story. This story is a sovereignty story. We're seeing the whole story, and <clears throat> what we see here is that God's story is a sovereignty story. Look at it again. Keep your Bibles open to Micah 4. And I just, let's look at different pieces, and I want you to see some things. So I want you to see again verses 1 and 2 here. It shall come to pass in the latter days. That word latter days is a word that is used by the prophets to refer to not just the end times, but the last days. More on that in a minute because it matters how we interpret that. Um, If all you see here is the end of the world as we know it, you're going to miss 
something that's actually clear in the Bible. He's pointing to the time between the comings of Jesus. Come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord, of the house of the Lord, shall be established on the highest mountains. <clears throat> it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he may teach, that he may teach us his ways, for we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples. He shall decide for strong nations far away. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. I want you to notice that he is referring to the nations. He's not just saying this is going to happen for Israel. At this point in time, 7th century BC, Israel is a little fish in a big pond. There are people who have all these promises from their God, but the nations around them are so much stronger, so much mightier than they are. They believe that they should be the great kingdom on earth, but here's, here's Egypt to their south, Assyria to their north, the rise of Babylon, the, the Philistines to their east or to their west. Everywhere they go, they have somebody who's ready to just destroy them. It doesn't sound too much different from today, does it? <clears throat> but here, the focus is on the nations. And he's saying, listen, the purpose of God is, is the, so the, the, the sovereign purpose of God is that God is sovereign over these nations. The story is that the nations may have their moment. The nations, the nations may have their day. But at the end of the story, God's purpose is to draw the nations to himself. Well, what happens is we get in our moment. We, get, we, we, we deal with our struggle. We see Assyria come. We hear about Babylon. We feel like the, the chaos of our life and the chaos of the world around us, it is just out of control. We feel like there's nothing working, right? Anybody, anybody resonate with this? We feel like my own life is, is hurting and the, the people in the world around me don't make sense. Where is our God? Why do I feel so small? Why do I feel so insignificant? And Micah is reminding them that God is the God of these nations. Babylon will come and go. Assyria by this time probably has already fallen. Where's the Roman Empire who was the big, bad, all-world dominating empire at the time of the Bible? Russia and Iran... They will fall. So will cancer. So will broken relationships. These things that feel sovereign in our lives. They feel all-consuming. They feel huge. And then we go, is this the judgment of God? And I, can, I don't know. Sometimes the answer is yes. But what we see in this text is from the get-go, God is saying, listen, I want you to know Assyria is not calling the shots here. I want you to know Babylon, and, and my purpose is that I'm going to use these nations for the purpose that I've set them apart. So he goes on to say, look a little bit further in the, in the text. Come down here to verse, <clears throat> verse 10 and 11. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now she, you shall go out from the city and dwell in, in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There's a pronouncement. You're going to Babylon. Like this, this thing is going to happen in your history. It's called the Babylonian exile, where literally they're going to be conquered and ripped from their homeland. It's, it's a hard prophetic word. 
There you'll be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gaze upon Zion. So here's what he's saying. In poetic form, he's saying, what's going to happen is you're going to fall. And when this happens, the nations, your enemies around you are going to go, huh, where's our God now? I thought they were supposed to be like the true God. Uh, you know, I did. We're going to walk into Zion. We can see the hill. We can walk right in. The, the, the city is devastated. We can do whatever we want to. Well, what's God going to do about that? You people who preach the true and loving God. You ever feel like that in the world? Like we, we, we preach Christ and it feels like everywhere you go, anybody who's trusting in Jesus is either nuts and a charlatan or they're suffering and persecuted. And it's like, do we really hold on to this thing called Christianity? Because it feels like it's losing in places and spaces. And look, look at what he says. When, when they're saying that, but they, verse 12, but they do not know the thoughts of Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. They think they're all that. And nations will rise, nations will fall, and every single one of them are nothing more than a pawn in the hand of the Lord so that God Almighty can tell his story in history. That's all, all they are. Now, what does that mean for me? It means that God is sovereign over Iran and, and Babylon and Persia and Iraq and, and Russia and Ukraine. And I may not, we, in this life, we don't know what's going to turn out of this, but God is sovereign over that. But it also looks at me, individual, and says, man, I have my issues in life. I have my struggles. I have my sins. I have my failures. I have my hurts. I have my, my brokenness. But I know the end of the story. I know that my Redeemer lives. And every time I am looking at my moment and I get stuck in the chaos of the moment, the Bible is inviting me to lift my chin above it and say, I know who is sovereign over the world. And that same God who is sovereign over the world is sovereign over my life. He is good. My situation may not be. He is good. And what's he doing? Just all through the Bible. Get like, learn this phrase. Get it into your head. That God is always, always working in my life, in my community, in my church, in the world around me. He is working to reveal his glory for my good and the salvation of the nations. That's what he's doing. Sometimes that means with his own people he asked that act to defend his glory because they have stepped and treaded on his glory in a way that he can't let go because the nations will laugh and scoff at his people. And God has to defend his name. That's what's happening there, here. But this is what he's doing. He is sovereign. And it is his glory, but it's for your good. Doesn't feel good. I know, I know. Do you trust him? Do you trust him enough to say, okay, Lord, this has happened in my life. My, my life is hurting but you're sovereign, you're good. Do you trust him that he will see you through, that his purpose is going to be worked out, that his glory is going to be real, revealed? This is exactly what Mike is trying to say. I know that this is bad, bad news. Don't lose heart. The story that God is telling is the story of his sovereignty. Nothing can happen to you, follower of Jesus, that is outside his, his purpose and plan and command. God, did you, there are mornings 
where you wake up. I mean, come on, give, give me an amen to this. There are mornings you wake up where you're like, I did not see this coming in my life. I got one. So the rest of you are like, no, my life's pretty cool. All right, let me say it again. There are moments, mornings and moments in your life where you wake up and you go, I did not see my life going this direction and this happening in my life. Amen? God did not wake up with the same value that morning. God did not wake up and say, I didn't see that coming either. God is orchestrating the events of your life for his glory, your good, the salvation of the nations. That's what he's doing. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you get to be included in that. Now, if you don't follow Jesus, what God is orchestrating in your life is vastly different. He is calling you to repent and believe. He is still sovereign. It's a sovereignty story. Second thing we see is that it is a salvation story. God is telling a salvation story. Um, <clears throat> Verses 1 to 5, we just read part of it, is this beautiful picture, poetic picture, that we were like, what? What's going on here? But first century Hebrews would have read it because what's happening is he's saying, here's Mount Zion, Zion is a metaphor, it's another, it's a, it's a synonym for the city of Jerusalem, okay? So what you have here is 7th century Israel, knowing that there is a real city in their, their, their nation that is kind of the hub of everything. It is our cultural, religious, economic center, but what's, what's central to it is at the top of, of that city is the temple. It is not just a church building. I love that we're in the middle, middle of building a church uh, building. We're, we're going to have a day, and hopefully in the you know, next 12 months where we're going to, on a Sunday morning, go, we're not meeting here anymore. We're going to be there. Isn't that exciting? It's not a temple. We are not building a place where God resides. We're building a building. That's it. We're not building a church. We're building a building. We're building a place where the temple of the living God, that's us, will go worship the true and living God in a, a, a building. But the temple in Jerusalem at that time was something different. It was where God met his people. In other words, the temple in Jerusalem was a point on earth where the veil between heaven and earth was removed and heaven met earth at that place. You gotta understand, it's more than just a church building. It's way more important. It is where God met his people. It was on top of Mount Zion, the hill where Jerusalem was built. So hence the, the use of Zion and Jerusalem all through this text. But it's not a very big hill. It's not a massive mountain. Even Israel, there's a lot of peaks, a lot of mountains that are way taller, okay? And so what's happening in the Texas, he's like, there's going to be this day where Mount Zion will be the tallest mountain in the land. But on top of this, what had been going on in the history is that the other places, these other mountaintops became these horrible Terrible places where this the idolatrous stuff was going on. They, the Israel worshiping other gods would build shrines to other gods that would end up doing the things that I've already referenced this morning. These places called high places on top of other mountains. And they were just mimicking the activity of the nations around them. Where They felt like, you know, a high spot in the world is where people are closest to God. They would build these shrines, it, you know. But it, it was tipping their hat to gods who were no gods at all, but gods who in other ways, destroyed their lives as they sought fame, money, wealth, power, things like that, sex. And Israel jumped all into this. And here's what he says. I says, and Micah says, there's this day coming 
where Mount Zion will be the highest hill. And not only will it be the highest hill, but from Israel and from the nations, they are going to leave their hills. They're going to come to this hill where they will meet the true and living God. That's what Micah's predicting here. Now, one thing we've got to understand, these prophecies are really cool, and they're really interesting, they're really rich, they're really thick, a lot of great stuff. But one thing you've got to understand is that the way these prophets, these prophets speak and the way they, they show up is they begin to see the coming story of Jesus as a future event. But it's kind of like driving through. I've used this illustration before, but I want to use it again today, if you haven't heard this, to teach you how to read the Old Testament in the Bible. What you have is the prophets are like people who are driving through the plains of, of uh, Colorado, driving west toward Denver. Now, if you've never had this experience, you've got to understand what I'm saying, okay? What's happening here is you are on this flat, nothing ground. The first half of Colorado as you're driving is just a continuation of the state of Kansas. That's all it is. You know what the, national, the state tree of Kansas is? It's the telephone pole. Like, it's just flat plains, but there's a point where way off in the distance, you start seeing a, a purple haze, and then next thing you know, you start seeing the beauty of, of mountains, and the closer you get to Denver, the more real they get. But what you're seeing is, is from this angle, it really just looks like one flat, two-dimensional set of mountains. Like, there's mountains. There's, like, it's like that, right? And you're driving, but then when you get to Denver, you start to see, oh, there's Depth. And then you climb that, you take high, I-70, you climb that first, first mountain right out of, uh, of Golden there, and now you're in it. You're like, oh my gosh, there are multiple peaks. From this distance, it just like, looked like one flat, two-dimensional range. We got into, and there are peaks everywhere. You just keep, keep going up and down, up and down through tunnels. It's, it's glorious, and every mountain is more beautiful. What's happening here is that in a very compressed way, sometimes in the same text, the prophets are looking forward and they're seeing two sets of peaks, but they're pressed together so that two events that we now, the New Testament helps us see this, two events that are going to happen at least 2,000 years apart are pressed into one text so that both ideas are in one moment. They're on the plains looking forward. We've passed the first peak, but those two peaks are the coming of Jesus when he came born in Bethlehem, born in, in, into Jerusalem, living his life as our Redeemer and Savior, the perfect life of Christ, the, 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 the ministry he has, the love he had for the broken and outcasts, and then his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. And, and, and this text just unpacks this. Look who he says, starting like verse 5 and 6, who's coming to him? Verse 6. Verse 5, for all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Something is going to change so that we don't keep drifting. God is going to galvanize the hearts of his people so they, they are in. And then he says this, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. Gather those who have been driven away, those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant. And those who are cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. 
What's he talking about? Well, they just were indicted for mistreating the lame, the marginalized, of taking the broken, their injustice and oppression, pushing the, the, the useless people to society to the margins. And here's the picture. On the day when Mount Zion is lifted up and people start looking to that hill for their salvation, who's he going to gather? He's going to gather the people that the nation of Israel at this point in time are, are just discarding. What's that look like? It looks like Jesus hanging out in a small town. Here's Jesus like preaching and teaching. Thousands of people are gathered around him. The dude has this ministry that is gathering people everywhere, right? And, and people even from the nations are showing up, but, but he is, he's just loving. He's, he's healing people. He's teaching. He's performing his ministry. He's calling people to repentance. He's telling them that the gospel is the hope that they have, that they need to t- repent from their sin and believe in Jesus. And he's walking through this crowd and, and this guy comes up and his name is Jairus. And Jairus is this guy who his daughter is 12 years old. He loves his daughter and he's terrified because she is like dying, deep breaths, barely holding on to life. He walks up to Jesus and he's a synagogue leader, which means he's, he's among the Jewish establishment. They did not like Jesus. But at that moment, he's willing to cast aside his job if it means the salvation of his daughter. He walks up to Jesus and he says, my daughter's sick. And Jesus looks at him and says, my brother have faith, only belief." And they start walking towards Jairus' house. Jesus is going to go with them. But he's walking and this woman in the crowd had this crazy idea. She, she'd had this problem where she was bleeding, female bleeding. For 12 years, she'd been le- bleeding the exact same time, the exact same amount of time that the little girl had been alive. And she'd spent every dime she had to try to find a solution. See, in this culture, this time, it's bad enough to go through that. Like the shame that it would be part of a woman's life, that this was your world, right? It's a real thing. But, but from the law of God, it left her unclean, completely unable to participate in the community. She, she couldn't go into the synagogue where Jairus was the ruler. She, she couldn't gather with the, and, and do the corporate prayers and hear the reading of scripture with a faith family because of this. It left her destitute, hopeless. And she just went, you know, if, if, I, can, if I can just I can keep hearing about this Jesus guy, if I could just get where he is, touch the hem of his garment, maybe something could happen. Nothing else has worked. She touches the hem of his garment, and the Bible tells us, the story tells us, that Jesus immediately knew that his power had gone out. She was healed like that. But understand her shame. She wants this to be inconspicuous. But nobody had looked her in the eyes for years. And Jesus goes, who touched me? Now, this is kind of like God in the, the garden going, Adam, where are you? Like, it's not like Jesus is unaware of what's going on, okay? And his disciples are like, there are thousands of people reaching out to touch you. What are you talking about? But, but he singles her out so they can look her in the eye. 
and love her and announces that God has brought salvation to this daughter of Israel. But he stopped. He stopped and paused. There's a sick girl who's dying. And what, like, and as they finish this conversation with this woman where Jesus reaches down and cares for this broken woman, the servants of Jairus show up and say, brother, it's, it's too late. It's too late. The little girl's dead. Jesus looks at him the second time and just goes, trust me. Trust me. He gets to the house and they've already assembled people who are mourning. They're wailing and weeping and crying out, feeling like this moment is, is bigger than life. And Jesus walks in and goes, why are you guys crying? She's just sleeping. And they start mocking Jesus, but he clears the house out and brings mom and dad into the bedroom, grabs her by the hand, calls her by name and says, sweetie, get up. open. Do you see Jerusalem growing? Do you see what's happening? This is what Mike is talking about. He's saying, listen, this this king is going to show up. The nations are going to come. But then the ultimate exaltation is where this king is hung on that hill. There's no mountain peak in the universe that's higher than Mount Calvary at that moment, right? God is saving his people. Micah is telling them, listen, your story's hard. It's gonna be tough. Those of you who are actually innocent are gonna go through awful stuff, but God is orchestrating the events of history. He is telling a salvation story. Your city, God is gonna show up there. He's gonna exalt the city. He's gonna be there. But don't, don't miss this. That's not the end of that story. He's telling a salvation story. He includes us in the beauty of that salvation story. He's inviting us in to be a part of this. And Christ is the hope of that story. We will see this in fullness next week. But that's what this text is about. Don't miss it. It is what he is promising. But he is seeing two mountain peaks. More on that in a minute. That are pushed together. And even in this poem, they're mashed into one moment for Micah. He wants them to see that God is going to. What ails them in their culture and in the brokenness of their people is going to be redeemed. Because he is telling a, he is telling a, this is, God's story is a sovereignty story. He, he is doing what he wants. He is telling a salvation story. Third, he is, God's story is a story, is a sanctification story. It's a sanctification story. He's taking his people and he's shaping them. Verses 9 to 12 again. Look at it. Look what happens. Because the tone, the tone of verses 9 to 12 turns back to kind of the tone of chapters 1 to 3. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Now, he, he, there, there's a contrast here. In verse 8, he just said, And you, O tower of the flock, the hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, now don't miss this. This is big in understanding what's going on here. He's saying, listen, what's going to happen in Jerusalem is that the old kingdom is going to show up when the true king is revealed. 
That's all he says right there. The old kingdom is going to show up in this city when the true king is revealed. Now, that's about Jesus. And that's why next week is going to be so important because all of chapter 5 is going to show us in detail who that person is. You can't miss it, okay? But he says this is what's going to happen. He says, your problem today, people of God, you don't have a king. God is supposed to be your king, but you're living like the judges where there's no king in Israel and everybody does what is right in their own eyes. You don't have a king. You're living as the, like, you want to rule yourselves. You're, you, you want to be the king of your own lives. And he says, writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For you shall go out from the city and shall dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. This, again, because this is the way you who are supposed, I'm supposed to be your king. This is how you've lived your lives. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. Many nations will assemble against you, saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan Here it is, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. It's a weird phrase, what's going on? Well, threshing floor at that point in time was a very common thing and an agricultural thing. You would harvest your grain, you would bring the whole sheaves of grain, and you would put it in this big floor that had like a drain in the bottom of it. And then you get a whole bunch of people and they take their shoes off and try to wash their feet, hopefully, and they either, either use it for grapes or for grain. They would get in there and just trample it and crush their grain, crush their grain, crush their grain with their feet. Just crush, 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 trample, 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 crush, 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 crush. So that the true grain that is edible and usable would be broken out, broken out of the husk of the wheat and would fall through that floor. The floor would strain that which was discardable and useless, and the crushing caused useful fruit that was for their nourishment. So, what again, poem, what's he saying? He's saying, Babylon thinks they are something, but they're nothing more than a threshing floor. God is going to send his people to a place where that crushing is going to burst out the good fruit so that when they come back, they're useful. What's he saying? That God is in the business of shaping our lives. If you're a follower of Jesus, God is in the business of shaping our lives through hardship, suffering, pain, so that he makes us more like Jesus. That's the story. Whatever you're going through right now, if you are a follower of Jesus, hold on to him. You may not be able to make sense of it, but I can promise you from here and other places of Scripture that for his people, he has not discarded you. He has not ditched you. You are not in a chaos, chaotic world where there is no control. God is using the events in your life. You may not, this side of glory, be able to know the answer to the question why, but he will give you himself, and he is shaping you through this season to become more like Jesus. So, so Paul in the New Testament says it like this in one of the great passages of the, of, the, of the New Testament where he's talking about God's sanctifying work, God's work of making us holy. That's what sanctification means. Making us holy, making us more like Jesus. This is what he's doing. And Paul says this. Romans eight twenty seven to 30. He says he searches the heart and knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to, to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those that he justified, he also glorified. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus today, what Paul just said is true of you. This is what he said. God has called you. God has justified you in the cross of Christ. He is making you more holy so that one day he will glorify you. And this process goes through the events of our lives, the hardship, so that we know that all things work together for good. We like to pull that verse out and put it on a coffee cup. We like to go, all things work together for good. But we gotta define good like the text does it. And your good is whatever God has to do in your life to make your life more like Christ. That's an amen moment. That's his goal for you. That's what your good is. Your good is not cream puffs and happiness every day. We think it is. Your good is the process of God doing a glorious, beautiful work in you and in us as a people. But sometimes we have to go through the threshing floor, don't we? Sometimes outsiders will trample on us. Sometimes the church will be persecuted. Sometimes God will actually bring judgment on parts of the church of Jesus Christ. This one holy Catholic church there are places in the world where, like, the church has suffered and come out strong, and other places where the church has, has decayed and God brought judgment, but his church will endure. And he is shaping us in the image of the Son. So, so here, just, just build the blocks. This is what Micah's trying to say. Your lives are hard. Judgment's coming. Let's see the end of the story. What is God doing? God is telling a sovereignty story. He's in control. God is telling a salvation story. He is working out his redemption through the person of Jesus in your life. And Christ came. We look to the hill of Mount Zion every week here and see the beauty of the cross. We just sang about it, right? And we are part of the nations who have come to that hill. Not, not literal, metaphorical, but it's still important. It, it is the story that, that when we come here, God is always shaping our lives through the gospel, to change our lives, to become more like Jesus. It's a sanctification story. And, and the th last thing I want to tell you is it's a summation story. That there are multiple peaks and there is in this the promise. And he says, listen, here's what's going to happen. The nations will come. Guess what's going to happen? It's going to be this era of peace. They're going to they're take their swords. But they're not going to need swords anymore. So, so, so they're going to shape them into plowshares, pieces on a plow so they can harvest and work fields. They're going to take their spears, they're going to turn them into knives that they can cut fruit off of trees. So you go to Eckert's and have a way to cut the apple off the tree. They're going to use their spear because they don't need them more. We're not going to need boot camps. We're not going to need military training schools. The nations will come and he will judge between them. And what's going to happen is there is this final day where everything God promises Everything's going to be made right. Restoration is going to come, and it will be a day for all the nations. This city of Jerusalem that was exalted above every city when Christ was in it leads us to the promise of a new Jerusalem at the end of the story. And what Micah's doing is he's looking at distance. He, he, it's masked. We get inside the first mountain. We go, all right. Christ came, he's coming again. Christ is there, but there's still the promise. It's, it's full and beautiful, but it's not finished. And I'm a person who lives between the times, but I know where the story goes. I, I know how the, 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 the story ends. How do I know that? Christ rose again. 
There's no doubt about that. And this is what God is, the story that God is telling through you. It's, he's telling through Israel. It is the promise. My, Micah is so beautiful. We, we need the prophets to remind us this. That's why I love the Bible. That's why we need the whole thing. Um, I'm not saying don't read little devotionals. That super helpful way to get your, your journey started. But there are times we need to go all Old Testament. Because if we don't get into a place like Micah, we can turn the story of God into, like I said, puppy dogs and cupcakes. Instead of realizing that God is doing a greater work than just my life. We, 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 we get back into the mode of saying, I'm going to turn my spirituality into all about me. Well, I, I'll be all about God as, God as long as God is all about me. And God is saying, that's not the point. Your good is being included in a greater story. Not me, me making much of your story. He's inviting us in. And Mike is just this beautiful, rich reminder that God tells better stories. And whatever's going on in my life, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're part of that story. He has chosen by his glory to call you, to justify you, to include you, to, to start making you more like Jesus, to do that beautiful work in your life. He's brought you to a church that wants to hold on to Jesus deeply. He has lifted your chin, and out of all the other spiritualities, you see the glory of Mount Zion, the place where heaven has met earth in the person of Christ, right? And if you're here today, you're like, that's not my life. I, our invitation for you today is, his offer is for you. Come, come to Jesus today. Trust in him. He's, he's worthy. He's good. He, he will find you. He will welcome you. You may feel outcast and marginalized, but he is here. He tells better stories, and it, he wants to include your life in that story. But whatever you're going through, whatever your moment is, whatever the chaos is, God did not wake up this morning going, I didn't see that coming. He is working something in your life that is purposeful and meaningful, follower of Jesus. Hold on to him. And I, I say this, looking around the room and seeing people that are in here who have had those moments where the chaos was real and the only hope they had to hold on to was the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Micah's pointing us to, okay? So find it. We're going to sing to Jesus. We, we, we sing. So our band's coming up here. We end our service with singing because after hearing things like this, we need a moment to pause and, and reorient our hearts so that we lift up our own words, our own song, our own voices to sing to Jesus again. So we're going to do that. And, and this is our confession of who Jesus is and reminder that that hill is the tallest hill the tallest mountain peak anywhere. The hill of Christ is all, and, and it is an invitation to be drawn to that hill. Let's come to that hill together for a few minutes as we close the service this morning. Uh, let's, let's worship him. We, we worship him through our giving. Uh, if you're a guest, we don't ask you to give anything, but our giving is a way for people who are part of this community of faith to say, God's blessed me. He's found me. He's rescued me. I'm part of this redeemed people. I'm giving back. And, and, and it's a chance for us to repent. Where do I need to turn and hold on to Jesus? And finally, if you're here today and you, 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 like you're in it, it's, life is hard, and even this message is, is it's kind of difficult for you because you're in this moment where all you can see is the, the world around you. We want to be here for you too. We'd love to pray with you. We'll have people over here near the end of the service, during the second song, and at the end of the service. Let us, let us pray with you. 
figure out how we can come alongside you and help you. If you're here today and you're like, I, I don't quite get this thing, but I think I need Jesus in my life, we'd love to have a conversation and lead you to pray and trust in Jesus this morning. We want to lift your eyes to see the beauty of that great hill today. Let us do that. So we'll be here. I'll be at the back at the end of the service. I'd love to talk to you. Let's for a few minutes lift our chin and see the hill that, that Micah points us to, all right? I'm going to pray. We're going to do that. Lord, we love you. Thank you for Micah's words and just the rich and glorious truth of the gospel that is pictured. Lord, I know there's a lot of people in here going through it. There's a lot of hard stuff in this room. Remind those of us who know you that none of it is without meaning. You are sovereign and purposeful, and you are accomplishing your glory, our good, and using us in your plan for the gospel to the nations. And so help us to lift our chin and see the beauty of that. Help us repent where that's needed. Lord, I just pray that we would trust in you. In your name I pray, amen.